Last episode on the podcast, we asked the question, should I eat like the pros? And we spoke to Associate Professor Greg Cox, who spent over 20 years working with elite triathletes through Triathlon Australia's High Performance Program. Today, we're going to talk to someone who's experienced both sides of the story as an athlete himself. He's been an age grouper and competed in triathlon, and now he's an elite paratriathlete and living the pro lifestyle. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. Sort of stuff that people are talking about out on their run or ride in the coffee shop afterwards or jumping online to try and find answers for. So we'll take that question, break it down and invite a guest expert or researcher in our A episode or a guest athlete or coach in our B episode to add their unique perspective as well. Today it's episode 55B, Should I Eat Like the Pros? And we're joined by paratriathlete Jeremy Peacock. But before we get to Jeremy, Steph, another week, how are things going with you? I can't even remember what I've done in this past week, house. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's it's been okay. I have missed a couple weekends with doing work. I thought I was going to get away from that with um, no longer doing the PhD, but that was probably pretty silly thinking when you're in academia, wasn't it? <laughs> um, yes. But, yeah, I think you're suffering a little bit more than me with um, juggling a lot of things. How are you going? Yeah. Yes. Juggling a lot of balls. You're right. Yeah. Um, but you know, some good things. The, uh, that systematic review we talked about a few weeks ago with Chris Irwin yeah. around hyperhydration, that's all been submitted. So that's in review, which is awesome. nice. So yeah, that'll be very good, good to hopefully get a good review back from that sometime soon. Yeah. Although I'm not holding my breath. Reviews seem to take forever at the moment. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we'll see what comes of it. Yep. Oh, and the other thing I almost forgot I've started doing some work with Fuelin, which is a an app-based solution primarily for triathletes, but I think other endurance athletes can use it as well um, that sort of links with your training peaks or today's plan account and then picks up your training sessions from that and then gives you a like a traffic-lighted sort of periodized plan for your, for your nutrition. So, yeah, started working with those guys, um, both, you know, doing some of the, the coach, you know, one-on-one coaching with some of the athletes on the program, but also... Uh, I do some. I'll be doing some work in terms of the actual development of the app itself and the algorithms that sit behind that and how it sort of does the planning side of it. So yeah, it'd be cool. Awesome. Yeah, very exciting. Mm. Looking forward yeah, to definitely. what comes from that. And just uh, updates. So just a reminder: if you do have a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can find us on social media at the Long Munch. Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Ow, I got there in the end. Uh, <laughs> it's probably because we've been so busy that neither of us have been on social media for the last two weeks, Steph. I think we've forgotten what it is. Don't know where my head is at the moment. Um, yeah. So, yeah, if you do have a question, please fire them um, at us over there. And we've got a couple of episodes coming up, actually, that are based on questions that people submitted. So the next couple of episodes will be exactly that. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's right. And so today's episode, our episode 55B, Should I Eat Like the Pros? And we are joined by paratriathlete Jeremy Peacock, and I'll let you do the intro. Yes, yeah, definitely. So Jeremy uh, is someone that, that I had the pleasure of meeting probably 12, 18 months ago or so when he started working or training with the Elotic Pro Triathlon Squad here in Melbourne that I do some work with. So got to meet Jeremy and do a little bit of work with him through that. So Jeremy is uh, an elite paratriathlete. He has cerebral palsy and he races in the PTS4 category. And we'll let him explain shortly what that category is and, and what that all kind of means. And he sort of came into paratriathlon at the elite level kind of in the back end of sort of COVID and lockdowns and everything. So really 2022 was the first year he actually got to do, you know, a proper full racing program and travel internationally for 
paratriathlon and that's paratriathlon and that sort of thing. So he actually went to world championships last year, his first world championships, and actually came third in the mm-hmm. PTS4 class in his debut race, which was pretty amazing. And he was actually awarded Triathlon Australia's individual paratriathlete male performance of the year for 2022 off the back of that. So, yeah, we'll, we'll have a chat to him about that in this interview. But I guess the main reason we want to talk to Jez about this topic was the fact that he had competed as an age group triathlete for several years before you know moving over getting classified in paratriathlon and going into the elite level of the sport there um, and so he sort of experienced both sides as an age grouper looking at what the pros do and now being on the other side of the fence you know training as a professional athlete and um, doing that volume of training and having that level of support around him in terms of institute of sport funding you know, um, Triathlon Australia funding and all that side of things. So he's a good person to talk to because he has both those perspectives. Mm. Yep, mm. yep. Um, and he is a very good storyteller too. So, yeah, I think mm. the listeners will enjoy this one. So why don't we uh, get stuck into it? Yeah, let's do it. Jeremy Peacock, welcome to The Long Munch. How are things going down there in Geelong? Thanks, Owen. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, actually, a little bit of a privilege to be on here. So, um, yeah, great to be on. Um, yeah, no, things are going well down in Geelong. Um, yeah, recently just moved down a couple of months ago and, um, yeah, just finding the lifestyle really good for training, um, much more relaxed. And I think, yeah, it's hopefully showing in, in my results and, and my my process uh, through, through power triathlon. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. And on that, I guess you've only transitioned well down to Geelong in the last couple of months, but into sort of the elite paratriathlon scene has only been probably two years now. Yeah, two, two, three years, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, prior to that, you were still racing triathlon, uh, more sort of the, the age group scene. So can you tell us a little bit about how that kind of transition came about? Yeah, so um, I guess it all goes back to my birth. <laughs> um, so I was born three months premature and from that was subsequently diagnosed with uh, hemiplegia cerebral palsy. Luckily enough, um, it is a fairly mild level of, of cerebral palsy, but still does it impact me um, on a day-to-day basis. But I guess, yeah, throughout my, my childhood, adolescence, and even early adulthood, I, I guess never really wanted to be classified as a disabled person. I never saw myself as a uh, impaired person and as a result yeah was doing all my athletic pursuits against able bodies I just wanted to be an, an able body mm. so yeah I started I, I my background is of running um, so through high school did a lot of cross-country athletics but was getting injured a lot and I look back now and I obviously understand that that's because of my cerebral palsy and me trying to be and do what able body people were doing my body just couldn't cope but as a you know 16 17 year old i'm like no i want to be running you know <laughs> four minutes yep. 1500 and all that kind of stuff yeah so uh, that then led me to taking up cycling uh throughout uni and i really i literally just did cycling for a number of years into my early adulthood and then fortunately the group i was riding with were also sort of half triathletes half half cyclists and um they saw me run uh, one day at a park run. And they're like, holy, you need to come and do a triathlon. And I'm like, no way. <laughs> no way am I doing three sports, no way. Uh, but they twisted my arm and you know, went down and did the local 2XU or what was Gatorade series um, back then here in Melbourne. And from there on in, you know, that was I think 2016, 2015, um, I fell in love with the sport of triathlon and obviously I yeah, progressed into doing um, half Ironmans, you know, Half Ironman was sort of my pet. I, I really loved and, and still do love that kind of a distance. And I guess, yeah, I had a bit of a epiphany, I guess to call it, a, you know, maybe a quarter life crisis. Um, <laughs> and so, sort of, yeah, came to the realization around 20, 2019, 2018 that, well, look, I do actually have this condition. I do have cerebral palsy. Maybe it's just taken me a long time to realize that is the case and thought, okay, well, let's actually do something with this very fortunate uh hannah mcdougall um a below the knee amputee cyclist for australia um she really persuaded me into looking at para sport and um from that yes looked into paracycling 
and para triathlon and yeah 20 2019 2020 i went through the whole classification process and really it came out 2020 as being classified as a para triathlete so yeah pretty much been in the scene since 2020 but unfortunately yeah my first international race was actually bound for the first time we all got locked down with COVID. So <laughs> I've pretty much been seen on sidelines for, for a couple of years throughout that COVID period. Um, and yeah, fortunately, love, last year was, um, I guess you can call it my breakout or breakthrough year. Mm, yeah. Okay. So, and we'll, we'll talk about that in terms of, you know, obviously you, you went to world championships last year, so we'll talk about that in a sec. But just can you explain for listeners who may be not familiar with the sort of the different categories in paratriathlon, where you kind of fit within that whole system? Yeah, sure. So para triathlon and para sports in general, yes, it is quite complex and complicated for, for those individuals who aren't outside of the sport. But in general terms, para triathlon, there's three main categories being wheelchair, uh, vision impaired, and then what they call para triathlon standing. Um, so I fall within the paratriathlon standing categories. And within paratriathlon standing, we have a categorization scale of two to five. So you could be a PTS two or you could be a PTS five. This ranking of that scale means that if, if you're a PTS two, you are the most impaired. So you're very heavily impaired. And that could be someone um, as great as missing two limbs, um, you know, very high, high impact of their impairment on their body, body, body movement, um, physical stature. Uh, and then PTS5 on the other end of the spectrum is a very low level of impairment. So most in those categories are looking like they may have a disformed hand, um, maybe club foot, um, just very low level of, of impairment. Where I fit in is what's called PTS4. So it's not your lowest level of impairment, but it's it's a medium-term level of impairment. And the kind of guys I'm racing in that category would be um, either below-the-knee amputee. Um, so big shout-out to Liam Toomey, another Aussie athlete, below-knee amputee. Or they may be missing their, their full arm. Or then for the likes of myself, um, cerebral palsy, that kind of impairment of not just functional and physical, but also neurological as well um so that's sort of where i fit in this the broad spectrum of power triathlon yeah cool and as we said before like last year was really your first year to do some to really get you know stuck into the the international racing scene in in para triathlon and that ended obviously with the world champs last year mm. you ended up third in your pts4 race which is yep. uh, i'm assuming a great result was that something mm. you sort of had expected going in or was that a pleasant surprise um look i think going in i was I was hoping for a top five. Um, look, our category is very strong. Um, we've got yeah, the, the world champ at the moment, Alexi Hankelkamp from France. Um, he, he's just on another level. But then from a sort of, I guess, just second to eighth, um, any, one of our, any one of us on our given day, you know, could be really standing on that podium. So, look, I, I went in, you know, hoping for that, that top five. Be it my first worlds, not knowing you know what to expect, mm. but yeah, to come away with a third um, was literally it was a cherry on the cake kind of thing. It was mm. it was a perceived exception, or it was it was like if if I get third, I've had a really great day, and it sort of yeah surpassed the expectations. So yeah, to come away with third on that on that day was just yeah awesome, awesome, especially for my first one, mm. and. Yeah, to now think that I can do it is is really yeah pleasing and I guess exciting to mm. see where we go in the lead up to to this year, but then also obviously yeah going into um the Paralympic Games in in twenty twenty four. Yeah, and if, if that was the cherry on the cake, I guess the stem on the cherry on the cake was the mixed team relay, which was the yes. next day that you uh, <laughs> yeah. were part of the team that that won that event and. That's a mm. new. That was a new event, wasn't it? It's the first time they've run it at World Yeah, Games. yeah. For, actually, first time ever they've done a para triathlon mixed team relay, mm. which is awesome. It's it's so great to see World Triathlon um, extending out what we've seen for a number of years with the able bodies in mm. in mixed team relay, and to now have the opportunity 
in paratriathlon. I not only think it's great for for the sport, but also for for people to sort of understand um, the different categorizations of of the paratriathlon. I mean, you know, you look at if you try to watch one of our just general normal standard races, you've got about eight different races going on at the one time. Um, it's very hard to kind of follow, but with the mixed team relay, because it's the one race at the one time, it's really easy for one to follow a race and actually to understand, okay, yes, they're leading or they're coming second, but then also the ability for potential commentators or those around to actually give an understanding of, okay, well, this is how the impairment impacts this potential athlete and then can really get to understand the individuals, but also, yeah, how the impairment impacts their swim, bike, run transitions mm. um, and so on. So I think it's um, a really, really great initiative and really excited to see where this can go. I think it's the the future of, of our sport. We've seen what it's done to the able bodies and Australia is a very key heavy hitter in the mixed team relay. And we're obviously very uh, forthright in saying, well, let's do that as well in the power triathlon scene. So yeah, yeah look, to take the win um, as the first ever race and to cross the line, you know, holding the tape, I mean, massive honor to do that, um, to get that opportunity. But it's, you know, obviously this also comes down to the team as well um, and not just the individual athletes, but also, you know, the support staff that were there on the day and, and the support staff that's helped us throughout um, the whole year to get us to that position, even though it's the first one. I think there's a really bright future for Australia and and paratriathlon in the mixed team relay. Mm, yep. And when we say mixed team, like it's a mixture of categories, isn't it? Like there's the wheelchairs, the vision impairment yeah. and the standing categories as part of that relay. Yeah. So, team. I mean, there's still like, obviously that, that race last year was a bit of like a bit of a tester open mm. event. Um, it was more for them to really test out and see, well, can this work? Um, but then if it does work, okay, well, how do we make it fair and equitable for all the countries to to have a fair race? Um, and so, yes, like you look at the able-bodied mixed team relay and it's two female, two male. In paratriathlon, they've, they've maintained that and they want two male and two female on the team. However, it goes that next step further and saying, okay, well, do you have a wheelchair vision impaired and two standings or can you mix them up and they're sort of looking at a bit of a similar kind of approach to what they do with wheelchair basketball wheelchair rugby where you can only have a certain number of um or guess like they call it points mm. point systems so myself a pts4 male i might be categorized as having say five points but a wheelchair athletes may only be considered as one point so in your team I don't know what the, the numbers are, but say you've got 15 points to allocate across. So there's a bit of tactics there and saying, well, do I make my team really top heavy with two really good PTS5 athletes, but then I only have, maybe only, now I can only have two wheelchair athletes or something. So yeah, it goes to that next stage as well. Um, what I've learned coming into professional power triathlon, uh, very tactical um, and very strategic, not just in the mixed team relay, but actually in how you strategize your whole year around as well. Mm. Not as simple as just going to every single race and trying to race your best. There's gotta be a little bit of strategy, strategy and technicality around it as well. So yeah, look, they're, they're still ironing out those details, but it sounds as though they're hoping to have something in for this year's world champs as an actual medal um, with the aim to potentially, hopefully have it in the Los Angeles uh, Paralympic Games in 2028. So yeah. that's really exciting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, well, today we're asking the question, should I eat like the pros? And I guess given that you've made that transition from sort of racing as an age grouper into the elite paratriathlon scene the last couple of years, you're probably someone who has a good perspective on this because you've sort of had a foot in, in both camps over a period of time. But I guess to start off with thinking about how that transition has worked from the training point of view, how has that impacted on your, like how does your training compare now to what you were doing before in terms of like how many hours per week or sessions per day or the distribution of those sessions across the week? I guess when I was training as a everyday punter, age grouper, I was probably at max mm -hmm. getting about 12 hours a week, yeah. maybe 15 on a really good week. Um, and that would be something like probably four sessions on the bike with maybe a long ride off one of those four sessions being you know over 100k 
maybe three running sessions and then really only two two swims i'm not much of a swimmer <laughs> never really enjoyed it so it's something i've been having to 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 learn um so yeah i'd say yeah 12 15 hours on a really good week as an age group obviously juggling work family life all that kind of stuff transitioning across to to being an elite now i'm now probably punching out on average i'd be saying about 25 hours a week on a good, yeah, if I'd probably look at a couple of weeks out from Worlds, last year I was probably doing about closer to 27, 28 hours a week. So a massive jump, um, you know, more than double of what I was previously doing. And, you know, if I look back at when I was in age group, I probably two sessions a day would have been the absolute max. Now as an elite, sometimes I'm doing four sessions a day. So um, in terms of that, I'm now swimming six times a week, biking four four to five and running four to five plus also three three gym sessions a week so yeah a massive trajectory and and that didn't happen straight away it was definitely a um a a slow transition but yeah to the point now where a 25 hour week is is fairly consistent and fairly comfortable to manage i'm still working full-time so that's definitely had its impacts um unfortunately yeah you as a power triathlete it's it's you you still have to work it's not like i've been able to just shut up shop there and um and become a professional athlete straight away um so i'm still working full-time and still managing that but yeah first and foremost now is is being an elite athlete and yeah making the time to make sure the sessions are key and hitting those you know doing specifically what's needed for that specific session as well Mm. I guess the other difference with paratriathlon, and listeners may not be aware of this, but the events are quite a bit shorter as well. Like yes. you're sort of talking yep. about an hour sort of finish time for most races, so kind of sprint distance compared to obviously you, you said before, you know, you're racing sort of half Ironman. And I imagine like regardless of the total hours in the week, that probably changes the nature of the sessions themselves in terms of, you know, long rides, may or may not be longer but also i guess the intensity might be quite different yeah very much so i mean i look at what my long rides were as an age grouper versus as an elite hardly any difference there at all however in those long rides as an age group i'd be looking at doing say three 20 minute efforts because i was more focused on you know the 90k bike whereas now when i'm doing a long ride it's purely all aerobic nothing hard just turn the pedals but what's changed are those 90 minute, two hour type rides where we're specifically looking at, yeah, your short one minute power, five minute power um, kind of max efforts to really build out that sharp sharpness in the bike, but also same as the run as well. Mm. Um, same with the run, I was doing, you know, long um, hundred minute runs as my long run. Now my long run's like an hour at most, but again, it's, been changing that mindset and also changing my body to adapt from a four and a half hour race to a one hour race because yeah all of our races in paratriathlon are sprint distance and i'll be honest probably my body is saying thank you for that (laughs) um (laughs) just with cerebral palsy trying to you know have that endurance aspect for four and a half hours on the cerebral palsy body um it's probably not going to be best for longevity in the sport so yeah i'm probably quite actually uh, relieved to be only be doing sprint distance but yeah in terms of training wise it's increased but what i'm doing in my training um, has definitely changed to focus more on that sprint distance type approach yep yeah okay yeah. and you mentioned before obviously like ramping up those hours took a period of time it's not like he suddenly went from you know 10 15 hours a week and mm. went straight to 25 but how long do you think that it took to feel like your body was adapting to that kind of increase and, and maybe it's it's a hard question to answer because it was so gradual but I guess in terms of you know getting to those 20 25 hour weeks and not just feeling completely wiped out by them yeah um I'll say it's probably it probably took about nine to 12 months the first six months yeah were tough <laughs> yeah it was it was pretty intense and just trying to mentally and physically just um, meet the demands and the needs of, of those training sessions took some time, but I'd say 
yeah, closer to sort of the 12 month mark was where I was actually starting to feel like I wasn't being fatigued all the time. Um, and I was actually able to do the session properly. Um, probably also looking back at when I was an age group, but, you know, I'd probably try and do every session at max effort or, you know, try and really get out the most and even like doing my long runs or my, my slow rides. I wasn't doing them slow. I was still trying to run, you know, 4.30 pace and thinking, yeah, that's slow enough. Whereas now it's actually understanding that those real easy days or easy sessions, I don't really say, probably got one easy day a week, but those easy sessions are really there to really take it easy. Don't look at your watch, just go based on feel and have it as that specific need of, well, I'm recovering here, I'm doing some active recovery so that when it comes to tomorrow, which is a really key session, I'm as fresh as I can be. Um, to really make that session count. Um, mm-hmm. So that's also been a big change in just the mentality um, and the focus of, of my training sessions. Yep. Was that hard to get your head around? I mean, you, you see this all the time with you know the, that old adage with age groupers that they do the hard sessions too easy and the easy sessions too hard, and it sounds like that's exactly what you just described there. Did you find that was a hard mindset to get into, like slowing down and going easier? Yeah, definitely, definitely, because I think you are so, I guess because... I don't know, for me, the way I probably saw it was because you're so time poor as an age group athlete, you know, you're trying to fit in that work, family, and then all this training. You sort of feel as though, well, I just need to get the session done and I need to get as much out of it as I can. So you really push yourself to, to get that much out. But actually stepping back and actually understanding, and I guess trusting the process, trusting that this isn't a sprint, you're not going to have, you know, you're probably not going to be reaping any benefits if you have an absolutely banging session, but then your next three days are absolutely shot because you've gone well above your range for, you know, whatever session that you were looking at. So what I've learned from this transition is more about being more consistent with your training, but I guess we'll get to it as also nutrition but be more consistent throughout that training block rather than having all these big spikes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're, you're going to have some days where you, where you don't feel great, but still just getting through the session, giving whatever you can for that and actually accepting that and knowing that, okay, I wasn't feeling great today, but tomorrow's a new day or even my next session is a new session. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had that before where, yeah, I've been in the pool and I've felt absolutely shocking i don't feel like i'm catching the water i feel like i'm just a a log but then i go for a run and i feel great or yeah the next day it's swimming yeah it was feel it's feeling great so and i just had that just this week you know (laughs) so um just trusting the process really um and i think that was probably one of the biggest changes for me to accept and having different people in my corner saying to me like look just take it easy you're not you're not in a race you know it's meant to be an easy day or an easy session just understanding that and not getting too frazzled that yeah you're not hitting the power or hitting the speed you want just to understand that yeah it's a long process and it's not going to happen overnight yeah awesome um so yeah let's now talk about nutrition so how did you think about or approach your nutrition for training and racing prior to paratriathlon yeah, I'll be pretty brutally honest. Um, <laughs> didn't really think about it at all. I guess from my point of view, obviously yeah, I was doing longer races, so I was probably more concerned about trying to maintain the energy storage and the energy fueling over a four, four and a half hour race rather than obviously what I'm doing now, which is an hour race. But in my training sessions or just even just everyday nutrition, honestly really never thought about it. And I was probably actually more of a pro, uh, sorry, a reactive eater. So if I went out for a long ride, I'll then think, okay, well, I've just done a really long ride. I need to now fuel mm-hmm. to recover. Whereas, yeah, probably what I've now learned is that's probably the complete <laughs> opposite <laughs> of what I need to be doing. But yeah, I probably really never thought about it to the extent I probably now do. And yeah, I just, pretty much I just ate what I thought was right and just, yeah, sort of saw, okay, well, okay, yeah, I felt great on that session, so I'm just going to keep doing that. And, yeah, just sort of found a routine or 
a ritual that I had pre-race, um, which ironically has sort of stuck with me now. You know, those, those sort of those 12, 24 hours out from a race sort of, sort of still got a similar kind of ritual. But yeah, my day-to-day, my everyday nutritional needs and eating needs, um, yeah, has definitely changed from from what I used to, to, to now as an elite power triathlete. And I guess back then, where did you kind of go for your information? Yeah, so probably, yeah, first and foremost, it's probably just like my mates, yep. guys I was riding with, guys I was training with. I was just sort of asking them, hey, what are you, what are you eating, you know, and then like a little bit of research online, but nothing drastic. Literally, I was just drawn by, yeah, whatever my mates, my mates were using. So if that was a type of uh, electrolyte or, yeah, if they're having pasta mm-hmm. the night before a race, I guess I've been in the sport and, and endurance sport for, for a long time now. So I've had enough time to identify well, yeah, what works for me and what doesn't. But, yeah, it was, it was predominantly just mates, mates driven. Um, I didn't really look at like what the pros were doing per se. Mm-hmm. It was more just I'm on my journey. I'm going to do going to do what's right or what feels right for me. Uh, but yeah, never really reached out from a nutritional perspective. Never went to a nutritionist or anything like that. Just yeah, sort of followed because I guess a bit of a sheep, just following <laughs> following everyone else. Yeah, yeah, and I guess yeah. Now having made that transition what has actually changed in your approach now to nutrition? Yeah, so I think I was, I was talking before about being more of a reactive eater. Mm-hmm. and a, um, What's definitely changed now is I'm more proactive. So in saying that, I sort of have a look at what's scheduled for the week or at least definitely at least the next day and fueling appropriately for what's coming ahead rather than what's actually happened. So that was probably a big change in the way that I consumed, but also looked at my food. And I think it's definitely brought out more of what I'm able to produce just because, yeah, I am fueling for what's needed in the future. I mean, my my three main meals as well, like my main breakfast, lunch, dinner was generally pretty much already hitting the mark with, you know, getting the right protein, carbs, um, vitamins, all that kind of stuff. But probably what was missing were those intermittent snacks or the post the, the post training fueling. So I was very much a, you know, a four o'clock, five o'clock bicky or biscuit kind of person. You know, just gets get that little bit of a sugar hit before before dinner. Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah, now I've really worked on understanding firstly yeah i've just finished a session okay what what do i actually properly need to to recover from the said session so whether that be a really high intensity session so i understand i need more carbs need more protein to recover but if it's an easy session okay well probably don't need as much but also considering well what's coming up next so having those kind of things and worked out um, a few different types of foods or snacks you know muesli bars that kind of stuff that can work that can specifically get me those key ingredients or key nutritions that I need. And then, yeah, just obviously then because I'm doing my training in the morning and then going into work in the afternoon, making sure I'm fueling appropriately during the work hours because mm. I was like, I work behind a computer all day. So you do get sucked in and, you know, it could be like two, three hours have gone by and you haven't eaten, you know, haven't properly drunk. So working on understanding okay yes i need fueling at this time generally um it's probably at that four o'clock pick me up but actually instead of reaching for the biscuits reaching for the fruit the yogurt the nuts that kind of stuff so that's been my biggest change i think and i think it's shown because then i'm actually feeling happier Mm -hmm. ironic isn't it eat more (laughs) feel happier but also probably i think when i was an age grouper as well i was a bit not self-conscious but thinking well, I want to be lean. I want to be as light but as powerful as I can. So I don't want to put on, I don't want to eat too much. So I'm not putting on weight. But it's the complete opposite from what I've now found as being an elite power triathlete. You've got to eat. <laughs> um, and yeah, now I just don't even think about it. It's like, yes, eat, just keep eating, just keep eating. One of my other good power triathletes is also a nutrition, nutritionist, Dave, Dave Bryant. Yep. Yeah, yeah. 
his um, one of his many <laughs> um, quotes is, you know, just keep eating. Yeah. And it's the case. I mean, we're putting our bodies through so much. You know, some days we're doing six hours, seven hours worth of training. You've got to appropriately fuel for it. Um, you can't just be, you know, going off two eggs and a bit of toast and a bit of bacon. You, you need a lot of calories and protein and carbs to, to help combat it. So I think for me personally, it's just been a bit more of an acceptance that it is okay to eat and eat and eat properly because yeah, I think you, you don't put on the weight, you actually are able to then become more powerful and able to yeah, meet the needs of your training requirements. Mm, yep. Yep. And I guess, yeah, although you didn't necessarily copy what the pros did before, did yep. you have a preconceived idea of how elite and pro athletes tackled nutrition? when you were yeah. an age grouper, either in terms of food, diets, or supplements? Yeah, so I mean, I think supplements is the, I guess the big one there, Steph. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, of course you look on Instagram, you look on socials around, okay, well, what are the pros doing? Obviously there's the How, the, how They Train podcast and they're going through all their train diaries and all that. I guess back then, you know, you see all these athletes promoting supplements um yeah food brands that kind of stuff and you start thinking okay well if they're using it well then surely should i be using it and i think i probably had this preconceived condition of pros and elites that they used all these different supplements they they had all these different you know macro nutritionists and all these different types of people helping them with their nutrition and obviously uh, again as an age group you're probably thinking well I could maybe try it see what happens and and go from there like i probably didn't go down that route i think as i previously mentioned i probably just knew what sort of worked for me probably didn't get the most out of myself but at that point in time and that my understanding knew what worked for me so i wasn't really on the the cusp of wanting to try a supplement some pro was advocating for Mm. but that's probably what my perception of pros and elites were was that yeah they just took multiple supplements were being obviously ambassadors or endorsements for these supplements so sort of had to follow them and and yeah probably just they they ate a lot given their training requirements and i guess because i look at their training requirements and think well they're doing 30 hours a week so i probably don't need to eat as much that probably got me into that lull phase of going well yeah i don't need to eat as much because i'm not doing as much training and then, yeah, obviously body wasn't getting as much nutrition as it needed to, even though I was only doing 12 to 15 hours, still a lot of exercise for your average, mm. you know, male, middle-aged 20-year-old. Mm. You need to recover. Um, you need to, you know, you need to fuel yourself. So, yeah, from the elite athlete perspective, it's more just what you see on socials, which, let's be honest, is probably not real life in the end. So yeah, that was probably my perceived exception um, before moving to, to elite power triathlon. And now that you're in the yeah. elite triathlon <laughs> training with many yeah. other elite athletes, <laughs> does the reality match what you thought it would be? No, nah, definitely not. Like I think um, Sport Integrity Australia's main um, theme is the best supplement is food. And I sort of live by that. And I think a lot of athletes live by that. The only reason someone's probably taking a supplement is because maybe they need a little bit more um if it's you know vitamin d whatever it might be they're probably only taking that supplement because they just need that little bit of extra maybe because of how their body's producing it but from what i personally see um with the the squad that i train with the loitic pro pro triathlon we all pretty much just constantly just eat good food i'll hardly see anyone in our squad or even just in, I think, triathlon in general, you know, with, with supplements or anything like that, it's it really comes down to, I think, the food you you prepare um, and just making good quality choices around what you eat. But, yeah, my perception of what a pro ate and did you, from a nutrition perspective yeah, is completely different now. And, it's yeah, it's actually quite nice to see that, yeah, people are just more about the food and the quality of their food intake rather than try to get a quick fix by some supplement or something like that. I guess, yeah, we're on the other side as well where, you know, we've got Sport Integrity Australia. We need to be obviously very careful of what we we consume. But I think at the end of the day, as Sport Integrity Australia says, food is your best best choice. Um, And that's what I uh, tend to follow as well. 
Um, one thing I forgot to ask you before, Jez, obviously with the big increase in training volume, I mean, obviously you talked about how you kind of had changed your approach to nutrition in terms of, you know, fueling into a training session rather than reacting to the training session. But I'm guessing just the total amount of food is a lot more now than it was previously. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, dinner, lunch, brekkie, they've all increased. But I think, yeah, what I was having on my plate, you know, hasn't changed. Um, it's just I'm having more carbs. I'm having more protein to combat, yeah, the more than double training hours that I'm putting in a week. But, yeah, it's, it's definitely, I think there's obviously a sliding scale of well, obviously the more i train the more i need to eat um so yeah that's definitely changed from that transition from age grouper to, to yeah pro. and was there any specific types of foods that you had to alter just because like the volume of food was just too much like you were struggling to get through it so you had to sort of go for something that was a bit more compact to get the calories in yeah yeah so definitely like from a from a carbs perspective um obviously i love love my pasta like love anything carby but what i found was i just couldn't have rice every night or you know pasta every night so sort of i've sort of gone to the routine where i sort of change what's my carb intake or type of carb mm -hmm. um on a day-to-day -day basis so it's not so i'm not having like rice back to back or potatoes back to back so that that's sort of changed um whereas i think yeah as an age group i was probably having rice every night or pasta in, in some way or form every night. And yeah, it, it does get bland <laughs> in the end. When it becomes a mountain rather than a cup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So by doing that or even like combining, so having rice and potatoes, but obviously then it's a little bit smaller, but you're getting the same amount of carbs if you just had one massive cup of rice per se. So that, and then probably also just from like a protein perspective, I was, I, as an age group, I had a lot of chicken really because i think you probably, I probably read online or you see with others you know okay yeah chicken's a great protein meal it's cheap teasing there's no no question about that but again when you're having to have so much of that protein changing it up is is quite beneficial as well just for the mental side so of it doesn't things. get monotonous um doesn't get monotonous so like if i have say chicken for lunch i'll try and have something else for dinner whether that be red meat or salmon something like that, just so I'm not having the same protein back-to-back -back meals. Just makes you more happier as well. You actually want to eat the dish in front of you rather than try and just scoff it down and just force it down. So I think that that's probably also changed that mentality of really actually, and like I, I meal plan every week. So yeah, usually Sundays I'll sit down and fortunately my wife is very uh, <laughs> very supportive with this um yeah she'll she'll usually follow what I have to eat but obviously a very smaller <laughs> portion um but yeah we'll sit down and I'll have a look at my training week and go okay so Tuesday Thursday Saturday big session days okay so Monday night Wednesday night you know and actually plan out okay we're gonna have salmon this night but I'm gonna add more broccoli more more rice, um, more spuds, whatever it might be. I think that's really helped me. Whereas as an age grouper, as I said, never really thought about it. So it was buying on the whim, not really thinking about my week from a grocery perspective as well. So by having that planned out, I think what well, one probably saving, saving me money, even though I am eating more, um, I'm saying very strict, I'm not having those, um, yeah, when you go to the supermarket, worst one I do is I go to the supermarket hungry. Um, and <laughs> never come home with what I actually need. <laughs> so, but by doing that weekly shop and planning my meals, well, yeah, it's, I'm getting what I need and I'm not buying any extras. And yeah, being methodical and meticulous with what I'm eating in that week just to help know that I'm getting the right intake um, for what's coming up. And um, what about, like, I guess, in terms of fibre intake, perhaps when you're mm -hmm. trying to get in a lot of energy, do you tend to then need a dial back perhaps on some of the fibre and maybe go for a little bit more refined options at times just simply to be able to get in that amount of energy? Yeah, no, definitely. I think especially when I've got, say, three or four sessions a day, yeah, bringing, scaling that back but actually looking for the more heavier concentrated type foods just definitely helps because yeah, we are eating 
so much and again comes back to that whole mental aspect of if i'm changing what i'm eating and yeah if it's a piece of wholemeal or you know sourdough bread versus maybe a crumpet or something else mm. it's changing it up and just makes it yeah more enjoyable to to eat but also you're still getting the right amounts of intake in a more condensed form and also probably good for the gut as well because because we've got such quick turnarounds between training sessions you need something that's easily digestible so that if you are going to be doing a heavy or intense set the gut is also all right but then that's also training the gut for race day as well so it's a bit of yeah it ebbs and flows but yeah definitely to your point Steph of um yeah changing up when needed to get the most out of you for that specific session yeah it's going to, for me it's going to be much easier to to have a crumper with a bit of Nutella or Biscoff versus a massive uh, sourdough loaf with, you know, whatever on it. So, yeah, you sort of just got to anticipate what's going to be best for that session coming up. And so I guess what is maybe not relevant um, in terms of what would not translate from being an elite athlete to going back to being an age group athlete, do you think? <sighs> I think it's probably not too much in reality from what I've seen. It's obviously probably just the amount and the intake um, because we're obviously training and maybe competing more than your your standard age grouper. We obviously need fuel for those requirements. But in terms of, you know, the amount of carbs, protein, fiber, whatever is needed post-session, I don't think that changes at all. It's just regulating for the intensity type or for the intensity session that you've done, regulating what you intake. So yes, I might do four sessions a day and that might be over a six hour block. I'm going to eat appropriately for that consumption of fueling requirements. But for an age grouper who's maybe doing two sessions in the day and that's spread out over a three hour block, probably going to be including the same types of proteins and nutrition, however, at a reduced amount, just because, yeah, it's for half the time, effectively. But from my experience, yeah, I haven't seen anything. Well, I've obviously been exposed to, to more from obviously my naive age group of days. But when I now think back, yeah, there's, there's not much more to be said that we are doing the same thing. It's just on a different level. So it sounds like the same principles is just scaled up for the training volume that you're doing. And then obviously something like the fiber might be the exception where it has to dial back a bit just because of that mm. quantity overall dialed up. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And, and so I guess from that perspective, in terms of people looking at how pro athletes eat and how that might apply to them, it's probably the principles that the pro athletes are using are applicable, obviously scaled down, as we said. It's more maybe, as you said earlier, the perceived things that the pros do that wouldn't necessarily translate because it's not the reality anyway. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I can't speak on behalf of all pro athletes. I mean, but as I said before, what you see on socials, obviously some athletes get some very good sponsorship or ambassador deals and they've obviously got to live up to whatever that contract stipulates. So whether that's the number of posts they put up or the number of interactions so again what you see on socials may not be full real life transition but that's not to say that that's right or wrong um but i guess yeah just from my own experience i've been more persuaded just to yeah to have the the true the true foods and i mean yeah there is there is times where i do have additional supplements um so for instance true true protein i do use um, but that's only on the one-off occasion. It's not like I'm using that every day. It's more, again, as you're saying before, wherever there is that need, I just need that that extra little pickup because I've done so much training in the day. Sometimes a protein shake, yeah, is mentally much more palatable than trying to stuff your face with, uh, you know, a protein, a protein-packed meal like chicken or something like that. So, um, yeah, I think that's probably just the perceived change or reality i've had from transitioning it's not it's not as though yeah what what's out there may be being used absolutely every day it actually could be more driven by what's in their contract what's in their 
their ambassador program. Yep. And yeah. um, in terms of now being an elite paratriathlete, has your sources of information changed? So like in terms of nutrition, where do you tend mm. to go now for that? <laughs> well, I won't be biased, but uh, one person <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> uh, so, no, I, mean, I think since turning, turning professional, um, obviously that opens a lot more doors to two different people. Obviously, yeah, being a scholarship athlete to the Victoria Institute of Sport, I get not just in nutrition, but you know, in all other types of services, you, you get access to more people. Um, so, yeah, my nutrition, um, yeah, is heavily reliant on on Alan here. <laughs> um, but in saying that, yeah, I think that it does definitely open doors to to more high-performing, uh, high-performance specialists, which then open my eyes in, in the nutrition space. You know, because, yeah, you, you actually have the the people who are really mastering their art and mastering their um, their business in it and they know what they're talking about at the end of the day. So, yeah, that's probably been the biggest change. And I think that just comes with being a professional athlete. Yeah, you just, doors, well, not doors open, but you have the opportunity for for more access to that. And then um, similarly as well, as I said before, one of my mates is also a power triathlete, Dave Bryant. You know, I just, it's, it's not like I get formal advice from him, but it's like I just watch what he does during races or if, I, if I've got a question, hey, why are you having that? You know, it, it's, again, going back to probably how I was doing it as an age grouper, just asking my mates, hey, why are you eating that? Is there any purpose behind that? Um, and just learning from there as well. So, yes, I get it from the formal versus just interaction with, with teammates or, or squad mates as well. Mm. Yeah, and we've had actually both those people you spoke about before, we've had Liam and um, Dave on the the podcast too so um and i'm always admiring what dave's cooking in the kitchen um, oh geez go and follow him on instagram <laughs> dave calvation dietitian um geez you will get a bloody master chef every night yeah. so <laughs> yeah and there and there you go like that's another instant instance of potential i'm following a pro triathlete uh why are they cooking for dinner it just gives you an insight into their life and and as an actual trained dietitian specifically in around triathlon as well there's a bit of credibility behind what what's going on there. So, yeah, again, just follow him and, yeah, I'll definitely give him a shout-out <laughs> to go and follow that page because, yeah, you will get very envious um, of his of his weekly dinners but also potentially a bit of inspiration as well. Yep. And do you benefit from that when you're travelling with him? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, definitely much so. Um, yeah, like there's definitely been a number of... Uh, tours or yeah races where um yeah we benefit from from dave being in the kitchen or on the coffee on the coffee machine in the morning so yeah thank you dave (laughs) (laughs) all right well we'll move on to our bonus round to finish up with now jez is where we find out a little bit more about you and i guess the first question is and this is kind of on topic with what we've discussed what's your favorite post-exercise food or drink and why yeah um i'll go um either an up and go mm-hmm. or like a big m chalky big m with protein so so easy especially after swimming mm-hmm. um i love it I, it's just such an easy um drink to consume it's got everything you really need and generally i you know i'll have this after swim but generally i'll go from swimming to gym and just to give me that pickup um, post swim is is beneficial, so that I can actually do something beneficial in the gym. Um, I do find if I do skip that, I'll feel lethargic in the gym, and it's evident. You know, again, because I haven't appropriately eaten or consumed, yeah, makes sense. So yeah, for me, up and go, or yeah, chucking the game. Yep, fair enough. All right, is there a sport that you'd love to try but you've never had the chance? Yeah. Um, this one, I reckon bobsleigh. Yeah. I'd love to do the bobsleigh. Um, don't know how good I'll be at it, but <laughs> um, just, yeah, that, that thrill of going at those speeds. I mean, I, when you watch the, the Winter Olympics or Winter Paralympics and you see how fast those guys go down, even like the, um, the, like the downhill skiing, like 
geez, like the speeds they hit, but the risk versus reward is so, so intense there. Mm. So I'd love to try it, but I wouldn't want to know the outcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We actually had someone on the podcast, Aska Jokendrup, who's a sports nutritionist. Um, well, he lives in the UK, but he's from the Netherlands. And he actually got to do that at a like he was at a conference years ago in Canada, in Calgary, I think, and actually got to do it. And he said he couldn't walk for a week afterwards. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> like, I'd love to try it, but oh, when do I know what the end, end game is? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, Favourite destination that you've been to so far, whether mm. that's for just holidays in general or that sport's taking you? Yeah. Um, can I go two? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, first one would be just like the Lake Como region. Um, absolutely love it there. Would love, I'd love to do a race around there. That would be epic, I reckon. But yeah, that is like a holiday destination for me. It's just got everything you need, really. And yeah, who doesn't love George Clooney's place when he yeah. does an espresso ads there? So, <laughs> but my other one would be the top of Mont Blanc 2. Um, yeah. back in, I think it was 2016, my dad and myself rode from London to the top of Mont Blanc 2. Oh, wow. So it's about three and a half week journey covering about 4,000 Ks. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we finished at the top of Von 2. So there's some really special memories um, associated with, with the top of, of Von 2. Mm. Um, and yeah, just epic, epic views over the Cote d'Azur region of France. So yeah, those would be my two. Yeah, awesome. What is the one sporting event, and this is maybe not participating, maybe more so mm. spectating, one sporting event you're most looking forward to in 2023? Um, well, I was going to say world champs <laughs> and, the Par and, the, uh, and the Paris test event um, this yeah. year. But yeah, if we're saying not participating, ooh. I actually go for like this weekend. Um, so there's the Geelong Half Ironman um, yeah. as we're recording this weekend. Um, so we've got a couple of mates down there. Um, so I'll go and watch that. But then also even at the back end of the year, sort of like yeah, the, the world Ironman champs. Obviously it's now changed obviously mm. yeah we won't go into that but um yeah just podcast. yeah that's a whole other podcast <laughs> um but yeah just seeing i mean I'll, i'm obviously with my endurance type background those those kind of races the 70.3 in the world ironman champs uh, are always a draw card for me so yeah keen to see i guess who comes out on top this year mm. see if young fredano can make a comeback yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. all right and then final question do you have a favorite piece of advice or motto Hmm. I've learned this one uh, over the, I guess, the last 12 months. Um, that, and I know it's really cliche and I know it always comes up, but it, I think it's shown purpose um, and I think hopefully I'm, in, I'm a showcase of it. But, yeah, trust, trust the process. Mm -hmm. um, I think when I came into paratriathlon, I was really analytical. I really got bogged down in you know, who the competitors were, almost to the point where I pretty much already wrote my race before the gun had even gone off. Whereas obviously working with my coach, Danielle, uh, we're obviously working on that. <laughs> I'm still not perfect, but we're working on it. But yeah, just to trust the process that look, you know, if you've been consistent and you've done the work, there's nothing to be worried about. Um, and it comes back to the whole consistency that I've been talking about today. Mm. It's just trust the process, be consistent. You're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. But at the end of the day, if you've done the work, then yeah, there's nothing to be worried about. And like, I'm grateful I've learned that here in a high performance aspect, because I believe that that can also transition across to just everyday life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as I said, I'm still working full time. So I take that motto into my everyday work as well. Just turn up, be consistent, um, do your best, and the results will show. Hopefully I can show that. Uh, that that's been the case for me, number of podiums, the last couple of races I've, I've raced. And just, yeah, that's what, I know it's cliche, and I apologise that it is such a cliche uh, quote, but I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm believing it. So, yeah, I'll go with, um, yeah, trust the process. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. All right, well, thank you so much for your time, Jess. It's been great to hear about sort of your transition from, from age group to elite athlete and I guess what's gone along with that from a nutrition point of view and I guess then what sort of translates maybe back to what age groupers can take from what elite athletes do and maybe where the reality is different to the perception is maybe where that um, the, the important point of difference is there. So thanks so much for your time and good luck for the rest of the season. No problem. Thanks for having me on. It's been great. Thank you. Cheers. 
Awesome. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Uh, yeah, nice to hear you backing up some of, um, well, a lot of what Greg uh, was talking about. And I'm going to handball it to our one and only wonderful summariser, Al. Yeah, well, I think I'll be pretty brief with this one. So our question was, should I eat like the pros? And I guess, as Jeremy said, like the transition for him, well, probably a couple of things that have changed for him. One is obviously the training volume has just got a lot more from sort of training maybe, you know, 15 hours a week to sort of regularly over 20, often over 25 hours a week. And so with that comes just much higher requirements for total energy, calories or kilojoules, and therefore just eating a lot more in general. And it sounds like for him that transition, um, you know, working with Danielle, his coach, was a pretty gradual one. It wasn't like he suddenly mm -hmm. went from 15 to 25 hours a week overnight and so he was able to sort of slowly build up that food intake as the training built up and he was able to get you know sort of get his gut used to that quantity so it wasn't maybe as big a deal if compared to if you suddenly had to do that overnight um so yeah i mean i guess as he said that the basic principles of sports nutrition still apply whether you're a pro athlete or uh, you know an age group but that doesn't really change i guess just the the amounts of food change is probably the fundamental thing and therefore you know some of the things we talked about with greg last week being mindful that you know fiber content can quickly add up to you know really excessive amounts if you're eating quote unquote the healthier foods um, is something that you do have to be a little bit careful of as a pro athlete and so you might have to go for more kind of refined foods that are a bit lower in fiber just because of the quantity of food that you're eating because you're still going to get a normal amount of fiber so I guess as an age group are looking at, you know, what pros are eating and you might look at that and go, oh, you know, they're eating like, you know, cornflakes or white bread or, you know, all that kind of stuff, like really refined carbohydrate. And you might go, well, two things. Either you might go, oh, that's unhealthy, but there's a reason that they're doing that. Or you might go, well, if that's what they're doing, then maybe I should be doing that as well. But if you're only training five or 10 hours a week, then you probably don't need to be doing that. Um, and it probably actually might be a hindrance because then you might be starving the whole time because you're not getting enough fiber in that case, whereas they're getting, you know, they're doing it because they're at risk of having too much fiber in their diet just because of the quantity of food and calories they have to get through. I think the other really interesting thing that I picked up with Jeremy when we asked him was sort of about his impression of what the pros did when he was an age grouper and then I guess what the reality was when he sort of, you know, switched over to paratriathlon and started training amongst a whole bunch of elite, both able body and paratriathletes. Uh, you know, again, that sort of perception, I guess, that a lot of people have that, you know, pros to spend their whole day eating, you know, like formulated sports foods and drinks and, you know, taking a million different supplements and that kind of thing. And then the reality was actually quite different to that. Um, I think that's probably one of the biggest things I think that people can take away from this is that, you know, just because it's the thing they post on Instagram. That's just a small percentage of what they do. And it's usually the bit that someone's paying them to post. And so it's going to give a specifically skewed version of their reality. And I guess we just need to be aware of that. And I think most people are to some extent, but sometimes we kind of forget and need a bit of a reminder. So yeah, I think that's, that's an important point is that I think there are things that we can learn from the pros. There might be little tips or tricks of certain things they do or certain, you know, foods or snacks that they pack with them when they go out for a run or a ride and you go oh that's a good idea and thought of that and so they might be little things that you can pick up but I guess the things that maybe are going to be fundamentally different that won't translate over is the volume of food maybe the compactness of that food in some cases and yeah as I said there's there's that view of or the perception versus the reality in terms of what you see on social media versus what actually goes on I think yeah the key ones yeah yeah, well said. And so to follow this one up now, we are answering a listener's question, I believe. It's a common issue, obviously, with athletes and perhaps something that they don't always think relates to their nutrition. So what are we asking? Yeah, so our topic actually, Steph, I think was one that we'd already had on our radar for quite a long time. And then a listener actually asked for it after we had it on our radar already. And, and the listener was Steph Austin, who's an ultra runner um, up in New South Wales. I can't remember exactly where, maybe mm -hmm. Newcastle. I can't remember. Apologies, Steph, if I got that wrong. Um, but the question is, what's nutrition got to do with stress fractures? So obviously, stress fractures are kind of the, the bane of your existence. If you're a runner or a triathlete, if you're a cyclist, you're probably going, what stress fractures? 
<laughs> but uh, we're actually going to talk to someone who is an expert in bone health with cyclists specifically. That's his sort of area of research, but it translates directly across to stress fractures. So I guess it's looking at bone health more broadly, which then has a direct application to the role of nutrition in stress fracture prevention and management. And, and I think it's a super interesting topic and one we've been really keen to do for a long time, Steph. I think we've been hoping to do this topic for over a mm. year now, mm-hmm. but it was just finding the right person to to be able to sit down and have the conversation with. And I think one of the reasons that we're particularly interested in doing it is that we know that bone health is a big issue in athletes. But also, I remember talking to a whole bunch of sports physios, probably 12, well, probably a couple of years ago now. Actually, it might even be before COVID. It's all a blur with, with COVID <laughs> these days. Um, about you know nutrition and musculoskeletal health and talked about bone health they had absolutely no idea that nutrition had anything to do with stress fractures so you know if that's what people who Mm. specialize in injury management Mm. the level of knowledge they have i think then this is going to be a really important episode for a lot of people yeah yeah so we're joined i almost forgot our guest is uh luke hilkins who is a researcher just um in the final stages of his phd around nutrition interventions and bone health in the Netherlands. So we're going to have a chat to him. Super excited about that. I actually came across him, uh, saw a, a tweet of a presentation he'd done at a conference. And I remember I, I messaged you, Steph, straight away. And I said, I found our person for mm-hmm. the bone health episode because I saw the picture of his presentation up on the screen. I'm like, that's exactly what we need. So yeah, we're super excited to chat to Luke. So yeah, that will be really cool to um, listen to that one. So that'll be in a couple weeks time. And just wrapping up, a reminder that if you do have a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter and you can see that we do answer them. And thank you to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We really appreciate that. And if anyone else wants to, we'd really appreciate that as well. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Encourage you to do that. And uh, remember also that there's now more than 55 previous questions that we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You may like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you can find the rest of them there, and that's going back all the way to November 2020. And if you do want to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you are listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or racing, and you've heard it on the podcast, you may like to handle them over to us. Um, They'll stop nagging you and they can uh, ask us all the questions they like. So we will love and leave you as always and see you in a couple of weeks' time. Will do. See you then.